welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Nice to see you. You as well, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I conducted with Emmanuel Iduma, the writer and critic, about his new memoir, I Am Still With You, A Reckoning with Silence, Inheritance, and History. So I wasn't able to join you for this interview, but that book sounds very much up my alley with the triptych that follows the the main title. Can you just give our listeners and me too just a quick rundown of what that memoir is about? Yes, Emmanuel Aduma is a critic and and a writer, and this is about him returning to Nigeria after many years of living abroad and kind of looking into an uncle who he never met but was named for who died in the Nigerian Civil War, Mm. the the conflict that uh, was followed Nigeria's independence from British colonial rule uh, and that lasted from 1967 to 1970. And his uncle fought in the war and never came back and and no one knows what happened to him. So he goes and speaks with different family members. He's kind of trying to learn about his uncle's life and also you know, looks in various archives, but it's very hard to find information on people that fought in the war. And I think just from the conversation I had with Emmanuel, it seems that even though the war is, is known about, it's still kind of not part of institutional memory as much as it could be. It's not taught in schools, for instance. Lots of people actually don't even know that it happened, and so information can be scarce. So the book is kind of reckoning with that aspect of the country's history as well, and then also you know just aspects of his own family's life since the loss of his uncle and since the loss of his father, and and also looking at different literature and Chinua Achebe and another Nigerian poet who he writes about who also fought in the war. It was a really interesting story and history and, and also kind of framed a bit with the present because in, when Emmanuel returned to Nigeria in 2020, there were these protests, these massive protests. And uh, we actually spoke on the eve of the election that just happened there. Mm. And you can see in the interview, he, he sounds hopeful, but actually um, the outcome was not so great. And many people who observed the election are saying it was rigged. And I just read in the LRB that the candidate who was elected, you know, is like kind of a thug. Is, oh. is what the writers is what the writers said, and uh, people had been hopeful because of uh, this other Labor Party candidate, who I think a lot of young people probably Emmanuel as well supported, who didn't end up winning. So that's the spoiler from the time we spoke till now. Oh my God, this sounds like such a rich, and I can't wait to hear the conversation. I'm sure our listeners can't either, but that sounds like such a rich way into both. I love stories like this that are a personal history but also a national history and the kind of hunt for records that escape historical record for a variety of different reasons and trying to trace that down. I I can't wait to listen. Oh, great. Thank you. And I, I should say, when you are listening, you'll hear that my audio isn't as good this week. I don't know exactly what happened. So that's unfortunate. But Emmanuel sounds great. And that's what matters. So... 
All Sorry right. About well, that. we will forgive you these technical difficulties, Kate, and we can't wait to jump into the interview. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Great. Let's listen. Let's do it. I'm happy to be speaking with the writer Emmanuel Iduma today. Emmanuel Iduma is the author of the books A Stranger's Pose, a travelogue which was longlisted for the 2019 Andachi Prize, and the novel The Sound of Things to Come. His writing appears in publications such as Aperture, Granta, Art in America, and the New York Review of Books. And he is the recipient of an Andy Warhol Foundation Arts Writer Grant, a Silvers Grant for Work in Progress, and the 2022 Wyndham Campbell Prize for Nonfiction, among other honors. He joins me to speak about his latest book, a memoir entitled I Am Still With You, A Reckoning with Silence, Inheritance, and History. The book follows Aduma's return to his native Nigeria after many years of living abroad. It recounts his travels to the southern portion of the country in search of information about one of his uncles, the man for whom he was named but never met. The elder Emmanuel disappeared after fighting in Nigeria's civil war, also known as the Biafran War, a conflict that lasted from 1967 to 1970 and came on the heels of Nigeria's independence from British rule. Though it touched the lives of a significant amount of the population and killed up to 2 million Igbo people, the war is still shrouded in mystery within the country, and like Aduma's uncle, the fate of many of its casualties remains unknown. In I Am Still With You, Aduma meets the lacuna of his uncle's life head-on and in turn confronts other painful absences within his family with a thoughtful introspection, using history, literature, the archive, and vivid encounters from everyday life to make a path across the abyss. Thank you so much, Emmanuel, for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you started this search for the details of your uncle's life. What moment were you in your own life that made you finally want to know more about what happened to your uncle? The book sort of found its form, right? around the time my dad was sick and eventually died uh, or passed on. And I felt at that point that I was interested in recovering something of his life, even though I'd always been interested in the story of the Biafran War. I think things came, things crystallized for me after his passing in the sense that I felt that there were parts of my family's story that I could then go ahead and discover in a sense, as a result of my father's absence. I mean, of course, the Biafran War is a big subject, especially for Nigeria. It is, in my own thinking, and I think many people would agree, the the formative experience of post-independence Nigeria. And so even though I wasn't really taught the war in school, you sort of encounter it as you become an adult in in every way, really, in the culture, in the social, in the construction of identity, both personal and national, especially for people from the part of Nigeria that I'm from. So the Biafran War was always a story that I was interested in, especially once I became a writer. But the inciting incident, really, for going off on this search, both in a physical sense, but also in a mental sense, was really the passing of my father and my need to understand his past and therefore my family's past. It's interesting to me that that you moved back to Nigeria after your father died and also that you 
then are searching for information about his brother after he died, where in both cases, it seems like maybe the finality of his passing, the fact that he couldn't tell you these things himself are what actually make you feel like you need to know them, even though when he was alive, you could have asked him all this information. I mean, I think that (laughs) for me, this project is really one of inhabiting or staying within silence. And there's a fantastic line from a poem by um, Peter Giese, where it says that silence is the most honest conversation that we can have with the dead. And for me, this, this attempt to, in a sense, inhabit, stay within silence became the project, really. The unfinished conversation with my father, in a sense, became the point of this book. And how do I make that, and of course, propose that as an idea to the reader as well, that it is possible to tell a story that is not fully sketched out, that is not linear in its telling, that is defined by its very impossibility to tell completely. Yeah, and your father didn't speak much about his brother either, maybe for some of those same reasons. Just for listeners who aren't so familiar with the Nigerian Civil War, maybe you could just explain the circumstances around it. Mm-hmm. So Nigeria became independent in 1960, independent from the British in 1960. And the country at that time and to a large extent up till now is made up of hundreds of ethnic groups. And these groups are defined by their cultural identities, mostly. And The three largest ethnic groups in Nigeria are the Aousa and the Yoruba and the Iwo in that order of size. And when Nigeria became independent, the country was governed under a parliamentary system and mostly divided into four regions. So the Western region constituting mostly of the Yorubas, the Midwestern region constituting close to the Yoruba or the Western region, the Eastern region, and then the Northern region. And then in early 1966, January 15, there was a coup d'etat led by majors in the Nigerian army who felt that the country was sliding into corruption and it was being governed by politicians who were not patriotic. And so there was for them, for the soldiers, the idea of a revolution, right? A need for a revolution. And this coup d'etat was, I mean, of course, spoken of in grandiose terms by these soldiers, but quickly fell apart or didn't succeed. It succeeded in some parts. They couldn't really pull it off on a national scale. And as a result of his failures, the highest ranking soldier in the country at the time, who happened to be evil, he wasn't part of the coup or planning the coup, but he just had to step in because there was absolute chaos. But because he was evil and some of the majors who had led the coup were evil, the northerners, right, so mostly made up of the Aousa ethnic group, felt that this was an evil-led coup. And so six months later, there was a counter-coup. But what followed that was not merely an attempt to take over the government. There was also a mass uprising against people from the eastern region, mostly evil people, but also people from other ethnic groups in that region. 
And so tens of thousands of people lost their lives in the mob violence that followed what was called or known as pogroms. And so there was a mass displacement of people from the northern region where these killings had been happening to the eastern region. And because people from the eastern region, mainly Igbos, felt that their lives were being threatened in Nigeria, they felt that they had to succeed. They had to completely break ties with Nigeria. So this is the inciting incident of the war. Nigeria felt, we can't let you go. And so between May 30, 1967 and July 6, 1967, when the war began, there were all kinds of attempts to reach a compromise, which fell apart. And in July of 67, the war broke out and it would last for 30 months between July of 1967 and January of 1970. And the Biafrans or the Biafran side lost the war for many reasons, including the fact that they just couldn't hold on to territory when they didn't have enough arms. And there was just a humanitarian crisis on a scale that I think the world had really not seen, at least from the African continent up till that point. So this is the context of the book as well, yeah. So your father and both of his brothers were involved in the war. And your father and his other brother came back, but your other uncle did not, and nothing was known about him after. Yes, absolutely. My father was a teenager at the time the war began. He had three older brothers, and all of them, you know, who were old enough participated in the war. The second one is the one who didn't return after the war ended, and... As long as you were old enough in the Biafran region, it was almost impossible that you wouldn't take up arms in some way. And it seemed that your father had some guilt about what his position in the war was. No, no. I mean, I think that was my read into it. I mean, I, I didn't think that he didn't sound like he had some guilt. I mean, what guilt was there to be had? You had to survive. But I was thinking about if I'm guessing correctly, the part of the book where you are referring to is a part where I describe that my father always said that he fared better during the war than afterwards. And this was because he was the house boy or a domestic servant for a high-ranking Biafran officer. And the idea or my understanding or speculation really is that his older brother had helped him get this gig or this job rather. And so he would always say to us, or when he would talk about the war, he would say how, you know, he would talk about how his parents were getting food through him. And I thought, oh, this is a good story. I mean, a good story of survival. But the more I researched into the war, the more I realized that many Biafran, senior Biafran officials would just take large amounts of food that were intended for their platoon for themselves or for the larger cast of people who were dependent on them. I mean, you can't blame a person, a young chap who, <laughs> who takes food and all that. I don't think he felt guilt, but this was my trying to pass through how my family survived during that time. Yeah. I'm curious in your research, what else you came to learn about Biafra and how you think of how it was managed and the choices of the people in charge and its failures, its triumphs, what could have possibly, and also just the necessities taken during a war. Yeah, I think that, you know, on in the first sense, the story of wars in general are 
pretty much similar. So if you were to compare the reasons why people went to war across time, across generations, across cultures and nations, it's a bit generally similar. There is usually some intransigence, some disinclination for compromise. People are generally with large egos. People who are powerful are more interested in preserving their power and their sense of self than thinking about how things trickle down, both economically um, and also just what kinds of sufferings would unfold as a result. There is also a larger, a general sense over commitment to nationalist ideals, right? So you see this in every war. I don't want to, I mean, you can think about Russia, for instance, on Ukraine. There's always this larger question of what the nation means. And so I say all of that to frame that, of course, one can look back and say in retrospect, the Biafran war was unnecessary, but I don't think it was clear to people that it was unnecessary, especially people in the Biafran region until say a year into the war or midway through the war that lasted three years because this war came out of a certain feeling that people were being targeted for extermination, right? And so when there was the possibility of succession, many people, I mean, everyone from prominent writers like Chinua Achebe or, or even Cristobal Kiwo, who I write about a bit in the war, in the book rather, felt that we have to leave, we have to succeed, and a military option is the only one available to us. In fact, someone like Christopher Kiwo, the poet, I don't know how much you know about him, but he's this poet who died during the war, fighting for Biafra. He was actually involved in arms dealing and arms running just before the war, as far as the records show. I mean. And so I think that I wouldn't necessarily be quick to judge the sentiments that led people to believe that war was the only option. But I think that what my research pointed me towards is how it could have been possible for the war to end sooner than it did. One year into the war, it should have been clear to both sides, especially the side that eventually lost, that this is just unsustainable. And so that's one, that's one way to think about it. I think that because the war was lost, you know, one of the things that I uncovered in my research and also in my thinking is that for the people who lost the war, the option of a war is always going to remain in their consciousness, right? So it's almost like if you lose a game, right? You're playing, it's a bad analogy, but I hope it communicates my point. If you lose a game, you feel like, okay, the next game I'll do better, right? I can... <laughs> I can do better. And I think that in some way, I haven't thought about it that this way until now, but in some way, that's what lingers now in the imagination of people in, in the eastern region or the southeastern region of Nigeria, that this war was lost. Perhaps if we went at it again, especially because we feel or they feel that the conditions that led to the war remains would probably have a different outcome. And of course, that's a very, I think, problematic way to think about it. I was surprised to read in your book that the war is not so much a part of national consciousness, especially for people who are under 35, who um, make up a lot of the population of Nigeria at this point. And even you're saying it wasn't taught to you in school and for this event that's so central to the history of the country. I'm curious if you have ideas about why. 
I feel like every time I, I think about this, I come up with a different <laughs> reason. I think that one of the, the reasons could be that Nigeria won the war or the federal side won the war. And so immediately after the war was won, there was a slogan, no victor, no vanquish, right? And so it was this slogan that was meant to gesture towards reconciliation. National reconciliation is more important than the sense of, of loss. But of course, that's, that's admirable to the degree that politicians are sloganeering. I mean, that, you know, but on the more intimate scale, people don't just move on or people don't just forget the vanquishment of, of a war. I mean, in terms of what Nigeria or the federal side set out to do, they succeeded. And so perhaps that success then defines how they will interact with those who didn't succeed, right? And how that has defined their relationship with those who didn't succeed is to say, you know, well, we are one country now. Whatever divisiveness was brought up by the war is perhaps secondary. And of course, you know, when the victor is the one writing the story, they wouldn't necessarily need to include the fact that there are people who are victims or who were victims. So I think right now that it's perhaps a, I want to be, I guess, magnanimous to politicians who were, I feel were sincere, right, in terms of gesturing towards reconciliation. But I think that the fault of in that argument would be that there is no such a thing as the lack of vanquishment after there was actual vanquishment. And so I think that it was perhaps in an attempt to move on, as they say, you know, move on into the future, into a more glorious future, that these histories were not taught or articulated on a national scale. So, for example, I'm speaking to, you know, yesterday I was speaking to someone in an interview and he's Yoruba and he says, you know, I grew up in Lagos. I didn't know a war happened. I mean, he's my age. I mean, he's sort of a later generation. I didn't know until I left Nigeria or I started doing research that a war happened. And I'm thinking this is fascinating because in that sense, the country is still divided along the lines of its remembrance or lack of remembrance. I would also say just that if one side of the country had such immense tragedy, because you write at the height of the Biafran in Biafra, that there were as many as 10,000 people dying from starvation a day, that if so many people on this side of the country would have lost members of their family, if that's not acknowledged by history, it is also a diminishment of the history of one faction of the country. And that's a disservice to that faction, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um you're right. I think one thing that just occurs to me now is the question of how would this history be written? This is the the big question for historians everywhere, right? So if you want to tell the history of a country or the history of the war, in what ways is it written? In what ways is it incorporated in the curriculum? Because we are talking of a fairly standard practice here. I mean, of course, outside of schools, the Biafran War is perhaps the most written about subject in Nigerian history. So it's not simply the fact that nobody's talking about this. It's just the way in which we are talking about it and especially how it's been talked about in relation to 
to the transgenerational nature of this event. So, of course, people who were key actors during that time, all kinds of memoirs exist, right? Especially from, you know, of course, men who were soldiers and all that. There is that. And even someone like Chino Achebe, before his last book, was a memoir about the war or a personal history, as he called it, of the war. And so it's, you know, just to be clear, it's not simply the fact that nobody's writing about this, even though, of course, you can argue about what is being written, how is it being written, who is publishing it, all of that. That's one conversation. But I think the question is, if this were going to be taught, how is it going to be taught? And especially when you're dealing with a country that still has ethnic fault lines, I feel like the easiest solution for, which is perhaps not brave, (laughs) is to just say, well, let's just move on. Let's not do this. Not because people don't know these stories or feel it's important, but because it's very telling, especially to young children, would be problematic and difficult. I was also curious how you think the current political situation of Nigeria might change if the war was more at the forefront of, you know, like what's taught in schools, national history. What do you think that part of the national consciousness, how would that affect the way politics work now? I don't know if I can answer this, you know, as a social or political scientist, for sure. I think that I can only assume, really, that if this was common knowledge, right, the facts about the war were more prominent in national discourse. No one was shying away from talking about it or facing it headlong. Perhaps there will be a feeling, especially amongst people from the Southeast, the Igbos and similar ethnic groups that are close to them or people who live in the places where the war was fought. Perhaps there will be a feeling of inclusion, a feeling that, well, we fought this war and lost, but we are not being punished with disregard. And if that were the case, I think that it would be, there would be a direct effect on the current attempt to, you know, return to this Biafran moment, right? So there's a pro-Biafran agitation at this point in varying degrees and in various ways in Nigeria. And so I feel that if the history was more central in the conversation, perhaps people would feel like we are being acknowledged. There's no need to to push our disillusionment to its most um, violent (laughs) degree. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Emmanuel Aduma, author of I Am Still With You. You know, we're kind of front-loading the conversation with what's possible to know, although you write that the Biafran state destroyed all of its internal documents Mm -hmm. right before the war ended, which I would think would just to be to absolve anyone involved. Yes. So there actually is kind of a hole at the center of the history even, Mm -hmm. like that's not completely knowable either, but then going from there to this own personal history that you have with your family and trying to learn about your uncle and really coming up with very little information about him. Maybe you could talk about that journey that you took and what you were able to find. Yeah. So the journey 
as I said you know, earlier, was one in which from the outset, or especially once I started traveling, I, I accepted the limits of my knowing. I accepted that it would be, there would be many hurdles in terms of knowledge along the way. And so what became important for me was, in a sense, how do I deal with the various or the varying strands of this narrative that I felt was unfolding? So, and I did think that if the material was handled with care and with some kind of attention to to detail, with some kind of openness and vulnerability, it wouldn't hopefully estrange the reader that there would be this sort of like reading in the various journey in both mental and physical that I felt was unfolding. And so I went about it in the first sense, just simply to be in these places where the war was fought. That was one of the key things for me when I set out writing that I wanted to continue in a tradition of travel writing because this was had become important to me after the last book that I worked on. But I, I was interested in travel writing that paid attention to research, to, to a core theme, I would say. And so I designed my trajectory around um, towns, places where the, the last battles in the war was fought. And also around places where I could speak to my father's relatives or friends or close friends who knew the stories. And so what I wanted to ultimately do was to show the process of this search, of this discovery, and to say that I could not reasonably separate process from outcome. If I wasn't sure of the outcome, what was important was therefore to show how I kept moving or kept attempting to discover. And that hopefully would serve or would be a sort of opening into this larger conversation about how one deals with silence and and the unsayable. Yeah, I think that that was my strategy ultimately, that I was moving, I was attempting to discover what monuments was left of the war. And these were not necessarily monuments in the fiscal sense, but monuments equally in the in the psychological sense or the internal sense, the interior expanse was one that became important for me to explore. So you talk to a lot of relatives, people who are close to your father, and you learn, I don't know if it's a spoiler to say what you <laughs> learn about your uncle, but I could just, I could at least say it, it's yeah, yeah. about a, a paragraph's worth of information. Mm. I wonder, was that disappointing for you? Was it heartbreaking, actually, that you really couldn't uncover more? Do you feel like you exhausted all the possible resources of searching, or were you kind of just happy that it led you to learn? In some ways, if you didn't learn so much more about your uncle, it seems like you did learn more about your family and the connections. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel that you're right, that I actually, it's not a question that I've, I've tried to answer. Like, what did this paragraph or passage what of discovery leave me what did I feel when that's what I discovered I think that I wasn't disappointed I think that it would be too big to say I was disappointed I think early on I realized that I wouldn't really discover much and so I'd made peace with it 
right from like just the first conversation, I knew, I mean, of course, I don't <laughs> record everything. It would be hours long of reading or so. But I did realize even from just speaking to relatives about the logistics of this, that we don't know anything. And one of the ways in which people have embarked on these kinds of searches is to look at the official record and to just sort of piece together the details in the official record and then keep exploring as one official record leads them to the other. But I didn't have any official record. There was no record of deaths in the Biafran army or even record of the infantrymen in the Biafran army. So people were essentially telling me what they had had. The most I came to understanding what had happened was, or the most definitive really, was a story one of my father's cousins tells about how my uncle died, how he had my uncle had died. But it's so, ex well, I mean, I wouldn't say exaggerated. It's so flowery <laughs> that you can't be sure if someone didn't make this up and pass it on as some kind of consolation for those who are looking for. My dad didn't tell me that story, for instance. You know, I'd never heard it. And so I felt that I entered into the writing of the book, attempting to know what happened to my uncle. I came out of writing it or researching, not really knowing exactly what happened to him, but at least I had gone on the journey. And there was a consolation in knowing that as I write in the book, there were people for whom the matter was settled, like my father's cousin who tells this story about how he died. And for him, it was, this is how he died. Even if I don't necessarily accept that as complete or true in its actual, factual sense, I accept it as true in its consolatory sense. It seems like that's another reason that a more robust national history could be helpful just on a personal level is people being able to at least know how their loved one died, having some way to search that. Did you ever wonder if your uncle was still alive? Yeah, well, my dad did keep wondering. <laughs> there were people who would show up after 10 years because they had gone sort of to other parts of the African continent, like Libreville in Gabon or Cordova, places that accepted Biafrans as refugees at some point during the war. And when I, for instance, visited Gabon like 10, 11 years ago, I did meet like an Igbo community that was formed as a result of the war or that's made up of people whose parents or grandparents had gone there during the war and never returned to Nigeria. And so, I mean, I don't know if I was, if I'm still expecting that my uncle is alive somewhere, I think he'll be, I mean, if he's alive, he'll be quite old. It's very unlikely that he has been alive for almost 50 plus years and never attempted to come back to his hometown which was something that people did almost immediately after the war ended, if they were, you know, or 10 years later, if they were in a different country and needed to find a way to return. But, I mean, of course, that's the, the tragedy of a disappearance, that there is never really, knowledge never really settles. You learned that for your father, losing his brother, you know, or assuming to have lost his brother, I don't remember what member of your family tells you, but basically he was never the same after it changed him. And in your family, there's been a lot of loss, not necessarily related to the war, but you lost your mother very young. 
your father lost other brothers of his, you know, when he was young, just this way of dealing with loss and how in your own family it was dealt with. And if it was dealt with primarily through silence or if it was dealt with, I know your father was a minister. So if it was dealt with just more in like through spirituality, I'm wondering if you could speak to just the personal way of your own family that loss was addressed. Yeah, that's a heavy question. I mean, I think that, first of all, it's never clear to, I guess, anyone who has lost people who are close, how they deal with that loss. It's always the story of coping and the story of coming to terms with death, especially especially when the person dies young, is always evolving, right? Because if one felt just the sense that if a person dies young, they are always going to be young, regardless of how old the people they leave behind become. That's just a broad way to think, I mean, that I have thought about it. I wouldn't necessarily, I think it would be too unfair to say my family has dealt with these losses primarily through silence, because it was spoken about in all kinds of ways, whether directly or indirectly, whether by actions or inactions, you know. So I think that my realization, especially while writing this book, is that I'd been wrong to assume that the only way to deal with these losses was to talk about it. There is also the question of living through it, and that is equally valid. So, for instance, as I write in the book, my father's remarriage is certainly one important way that he dealt with the loss of his wife, my mother. My life would have been a completely different thing if I didn't have a stepmother who truly cared for or who truly cares for me. And so the idea that loss or tragedies have to be talked about in this confessional way, in this therapeutic way, I don't necessarily think that that's how at least my family needed to deal with it. And of course, you point to spirituality. I think that if I had any doubt about my father's commitment to his faith, those doubts were eliminated, really, because of how he dealt with his losses. It was never for him. He never let it become the most defining thing or experiences of his life. It was defining, for sure. But for a man who almost every Sunday has to stand in front of people and speak and sound convincing and sound like he believed what he spoke, I admire that kind of fortitude. And for me, really, it's and I don't say this without sincerity, for me, that is more important than if he had gone on and on about the nature of his losses and how it affected his life. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to say it. I don't think we um, kind of like value enough that living through loss is a way to, (laughs) (laughs) is a sign that one is dealing with loss. I think that's really beautiful. I'm curious about this distinction you make in the book between history and memory. I thought that was a powerful distinction. You write that history is vertical, but memory is horizontal. Memory is what makes people take action, basically. And that's not a direct quote, but that kind of a single memory can motivate people to protest. But sometimes history is more inert. Maybe you could talk about that, and especially in relation to the war. And I think the thing about protesting was in regard to a recent event in Nigeria. So, yeah, I'm curious about that distinction. 
I was thinking about, you know, history um, or trying to make a distinction between history and memory because I was walking through both concepts in the book, the history that is written and given versus the memory that is unwritten and in a sense slippery. So I'm thinking about what I remember versus what is constructed as what the country or the facts of an event is for a country. And I felt that in terms of, in this particular instance, the NSAS protest that happened in October of 2020, what really galvanized people were just discrete or single memories of police brutality, right? So for many people, or what many people repeated when speaking about their galvanization or their interest in taking part of the protest was to recount an anecdote of being treated in a certain way by the police. And for many people, those painful memories was what triggered their participation in the protest. Whereas history, as you said, is more inert, right? The reading of history or the consideration of history uh, sometimes can look like cold, bare facts. And I felt that in order to animates history. One needs all these forms of memorializing, right? Or memory becomes central in an attempt to trigger or to make history more, more alive because history is constructed, right? It's, you know, I don't want to go into <laughs> too many theoretical concepts, but I think you get my point. But memory is more felt. And this was I think the moment in which I felt I had understood something about how events in Nigeria could never really be considered simply as isolated. Otherwise, we would just simply be, we just think that things happen for no reason, right? The protest came out of people, the lockdown, you know, I mean, that's how it was being framed, that people were tired of being at home. And so that's how, why it was easy for them to go to the streets in those numbers. Well, yeah, that could be a, a cause, um, but I thought that the reasons why people joined were in a larger sense historical, but in a more immediate sense related to memories of or traumas related to police brutality. That's interesting. And, and what do you think in terms of, of the war as more and more people will have, you know, as more time passes and less people will have any direct memory of it? And it's also not so much a part of the historical record, do you think it will just simply kind of become even more scarce than it is? The memory of it will become more scarce than it is now? Or Yeah, I think that there is some, and that's where it gets dangerous, really, because, you know, as less people have access to what you would call the facts, which generally can be agreed upon, who took the first aim or whatever, right? Where was the war fought? All of those things are available in the historical record. So you can't really dispute. You can dispute the sentiment. You can dispute the motivations, but you can't really dispute some things that are agreed upon as facts. And so as less people have access to that information, what happens, of course, is that myths are formed and peddled. And obviously, this is why a new generation of people, mostly who, whose parents or even grandparents fought in the war, have become taken with the idea of a Biafran state. 
so this is exactly why that these histories have been reconstructed or reconfigured around the idea of Igbo nationalism, which is precisely because not so many people, I feel, have access to the war beyond the fact that it brought untold suffering and the photos that you see that were circulated in the 60s from Biafra becomes the centerpiece of this history. Of course, those photos, because they show starvation, they show deaths um, and all that, would always incite a certain kind of emotion. But the questions that had led to the war, the questions around ethnicity, the questions around the fault lines programmed into the country, would always be forgotten or moved to the side in favor of a more emotional response. So I think that the perfect way to illustrate how problematic a lack of telling of this history can be is, you know, in the current wave of pro-Biafran agitations. How large a movement is that? Well, it's pretty large. I mean, it's taking most of the southeast, southeastern part of Nigeria. It's so large that in most states of the southeast, when the leader of this movement or the front man, really the most popular person, a man called Unamdikano, who is currently on the trial. <laughs> That's a different story, but he's currently on the trial for treason. And every time he's brought to court, there is what is called a seat at home. And this is, is actually, is so it would be funny if, if it weren't <laughs> tragic, really. But this seat at home is enforced by a, an outlawed group, <laughs> the IPOP elements. And, and it's generally accepted now in the Southeast or in most parts of the Southeast that anytime this guy is going to court, there would be a seat at home, meaning there is no walk, there is no movement. And I'm not quite sure now because I don't necessarily, I don't live there. And, you know, I hear this from my relatives. I'm not quite sure if this is something people just generally look forward to one day off work or if there are real consequences for attempting to work. Yeah, so it's quite, I mean, I say that to point out that it's quite a large movement. I take it from your book that you live back in Lagos after having spent time away in the States. I'm just wondering, like, what that homecoming has meant for you, if it's inspired you more to write more about your Mm -hmm. past, the history of Nigeria, or if you will be looking away a bit for your next (laughs) book. Um. (laughs) Yeah, well, this one is certainly heavy. I don't think I have an interest in writing a personal narrative of this sort soon. Yeah, I mean, I moved back to Lagos right before the pandemic. And so my experience of being in Lagos has been in the initial year was colored by that return in a time when people were mostly at home. So, and then also that was the year I got married. So, you know, it's really been a big period for me, which I'm totally grateful for because it brought a certain clarity and focus into my thinking around Nigeria. I think that I've always, and even when I was in the US, I was always interested in writing about Nigeria especially through my nonfiction work, primarily because I felt that there were questions that I needed to figure out about history, about the past, about my relationship to really what had been handed down to me in terms of national or even ethnic identity. 
And this is one form of this book is one form in which that kind of thinking can take. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm, mo- I'm moving in many directions at once and I'm hoping to find uh, narrow is the way that leads to life. So I need to narrow my way in some kind of fashion. But yes, I think that coming back to Nigeria certainly made me feel that there is work to be done in relation to the Nigerian society. I have become certainly far more interested in Nigeria's political scene <laughs> and thinking through, you know, what could be possible And by the way, the elections, I don't know when this would air, but the elections are this Saturday. So it's a very big week Ah. for Nigeria. Many people are calling these elections pivotal. And I think that it could be, yeah. Great. Well, we'll be following what happens this Saturday and what you'll be working on next. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Emmanuel. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Kate. That was Emmanuel Iduma. His new book is I Am Still With You, A Reckoning with Silence, Inheritance, and History. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Blotton.